Well, amen. Praise the Lord. Thank you, my lovely bride. And uh, we're just so grateful for uh, this Resurrection Sunday where we have the opportunity to celebrate the, the resurrection of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. In John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, as was already read, I'm going to read it again just uh, for emphasis. Therefore, my father loves me because he laid down, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I, but I lay it down myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received from my father. Amen. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. On September the 11th, 2001, the unthinkable happened. Four separate planes were hijacked by terrorists. Two of the planes, American Airlines Flight 11 and United Airlines Flight 175, were deliberately crashed into the World Trade Center in New York City. 3,000 lives were lost as a result. The third plane, American Airlines Flight 77, some eight minutes later, was intentionally crashed into the Pentagon building in Arlington, Virginia. Now, while Americans were stunned and just in disbelief, they, it wasn't known at the time there was a fourth plane and 46 minutes uh, uh, into the flight of the fourth plane, it was also hijacked by four knife-wielding terrorists who intended to crash the fourth plane into the Capitol building located in Washington, D.C., where the United States Congress resides. Flight 93 was under the control of terrorists. And once the plane was uh, overtaken, the passengers were moved to the back of the plane. The pilot somehow, when the terrorists rushed the, the cabin, was able to take the plane off of automatic pilot and turn on the audio system so everything that was happening on the plane could be heard in real time. Passengers were forced to move to the back of the plane and in fear, many of them began to call their loved ones and inform them that the plane had been uh, overtaken by terrorists. And they discovered as they were talking to their loved ones that the Trade Center had been hit by two planes and the third plane had struck the Pentagon. And this fourth plane, the intention was for it to strike, strike the Capitol building. So once the uh, passengers learned of the intentions of the terrorists, they made a decision to try to overpower the terrorists and take control of the plane, one, to save themselves, and secondly, to prevent innocent lives from being lost. While all of this is occurring in live time, 
the control tower can hear. People are praying uh, on the phone with their husbands and, and, and parents, and someone can be heard in the background reciting Psalm 23, while a group of the uh, passengers, uh, 33 passengers, seven crewmen, uh, two of the pilots had been killed by this time, so now they're 35, and a portion of them, they bum-rushed the cabin and tried to overpower the terrorists. Uh, they were unsuccessful, but because of their determination, the terrorists realized that they were losing control, and so they made the decision to crash the plane. Now, when the plane actually began to nosedive, uh, they were nowhere near their intended target. In fact, they crashed outside of Pittsburgh on an abandoned field. And while it's tragic that the, that the 40 passengers, uh, 37 of them Americans, and three from France died, their act of heroism prevented possibly thousands from losing their lives. And the question that came to my mind uh, is what would cause someone to voluntarily make the ultimate sacrifice of their, to give up their life for strangers? The people that were on the ground uh, were not known by the 40 passengers that gave up their lives. In fact, we call these kind of people heroes. We make monuments and memorials uh, in honor of their sacrifice. But what would make somebody decide to let actually give up their life? And what is clear is that these brave individuals on the plane understood that the only chance that they had of surviving the intentions of the, the terrorists was that one, they overtake the cabin and regain control of the plane. But the second and more valiant motive was that they were not going to allow this fourth plane to do what the three planes had done. And so as an act of heroism to protect the innocent and to die honoring their country, they voluntarily mustered up the courage to try to overtake these terrorists and to save lives. I find it interesting that in Romans chapter 5 verse 7, the Bible describes how rare it is for someone to give up their life for a good cause. Uh, in verse 7 it says, we can, uh, we can understand someone dying for a person worth dying for we can understand how someone good and noble could inspire us to selfless sacrifice. And that's the message Bible for clarity. But what God did for us is contrasted with what happened on flight 93. In verse 8, it says, but God put his love on the line for us by offering his son in sacrificial death while we were of no use whatsoever. And so what Jesus voluntarily and willingly did as an expression of God's unconditional love had nothing to do with any meritorious credit that we had to offer to God. This was 
the unthinkable that God would offer his son to die in our place. But even with the decision to express a crazy love for us by offering Jesus, Christ still had to decide to die. And on this Resurrection Sunday morning, though we're not assembled in one place, I just want you to know that I'm glad that he decided to die just for me. He decided to die just for me. And let me include you in that equation because God so loved the world that he gave his only unique son that through faith in him, he gave him by Jesus's deliberate and willful sacrifice of offering his life. Now, there are three things that I want to share with you with the time that we have uh, together today. First of all, I want you to consider the pressure Jesus faced to remain on the cross as he died. The pressure he faced was intensive. The pressure Jesus faced. Secondly, I want to share with you that the prediction that Jesus made, if true, proves that he is both Messiah and Lord. If what Jesus predicted was going to happen is true, then he is unquestionably the promised Messiah and Emmanuel, God with us. And the final thing that I want to consider is the predicament we were that, that we were in demanded divine judgment, but God did the illogical, allowing his son to die for us. The predicament we were in justly deserved judgment, but God did the unthinkable, the illogical, the irrational by allowing Jesus to die for us. Now, the pressure Jesus endured to remain on the cross to die for us was intense. Now, no words can adequately explain the difficulty Jesus faced as he remained on the cross, dying such an ignominious death. Jesus died in disgrace. In or he was in, in, in order to humiliate prisoners who were crucified on the cross, one of the uh, indignities that was uh, was allowed or, or uh, and, and, and executed on these poor criminals is that the Romans would strip them of all their clothing. Now, the pictures that we see of Jesus always has him clad with a garment covering his private parts. But the truth is, Jesus was actually stripped naked. He hung on the cross in shame and humiliation. And so the pressure was great for the son of God. He knew who knew no sin to become sin for us and to be publicly embarrassed for those of us who one week would be saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who came, comes in the name of the Lord. And the very next week, the same crowd that Jesus died for was declaring, crucify him, crucify him. Now he faced pressure in heaven to leave the majesty and the splendor of, of heaven's glory. 
in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, the Bible says that Jesus who was rich, Jesus who was royalty, left his riches and royalty in heaven and became impoverished so that we who were spiritually bankrupt would become rich. And so the battle for Jesus started long before he took on human form, before the incarnation, before the word of God became flesh. The battle was he had to leave heaven in order to come to earth to die. He became poor that we might become rich. He also faced constant pressure from his followers. Uh, remember in, in Matthew's chapter 16, and Jesus said, who do men say that I am? And Peter responds, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus responded, flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you, uh, Peter. Upon this kind of faith, I will build my church. And then the Bible says, after Christ says this to Peter, he says, from that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. In verse 22 of chapter 16, it says, Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, you, this shall not happen to you. And so Christ had to deal with the pressure of not going to the cross and dying for us from the closest associates that walk with him every day. In fact, he had to turn and, re and say to Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. He faced the pressure of not going to the cross by those who should have known him best. He also faced the pressure of human nature. Uh, we see this in the Garden of Gethsemane uh, in Matthew chapter 26, verses 39 through 43. The Bible says that Jesus prayed three separate times. Lord, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. And he concluded the prayer three separate times. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy, thy will be done. What Jesus was demonstrating is that as the God man, there was a battle between his flesh and the spirit about going to the cross and dying. In fact, he said in, in verse 43 of that same chapter, he's Jesus speaking. He says, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation and here's, what, here's the key. He said, for the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so the pressure of going to the cross and dying for you and me was an internal battle. He battled to leave heaven to come and die for us. He battled daily with his disciples to die for us, but he died. Aren't you glad he died? He faced the pressure of being called a liar and a false prophet by the very people he was dying for. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 41 through 43, the chief priests and the scribes and the religious leaders and even the thief on the cross, he saved others, but he can't save himself. He must not be the Christ. If he was really the Christ, he could come down and, 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 and deliver himself. In fact, uh, he, he obviously is a false teacher because if he was who he truly claimed to be, he would come down. I thank God he didn't come down. He chose to die for you and me. He remained, but the pressure to come down to prove that he was really who he said he was. He could have come down, but he didn't come down. He also faced the pressure of his father's rejection. In Matthew 27, uh, the scriptures say, 
that Jesus declared from the cross, the fourth of the seven last words, the scripture says that Jesus said in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabbatani, that is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And so Jesus had to face the pressure that for the first time in all of eternity, that the eternal father was going to be separated from the eternal son because God turned his back on the son while he was bearing our sin, while he was bearing our sin uh, on the cross. Amen. Amen. And so Jesus faced many pressures. He faced many pressures uh, during his time on the cross. Amen. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Now, in 1974, one of the greatest fights that I ever witnessed was, the, was, a, was a heavyweight championship battle between uh, George Foreman, who was the champ, heavyweight champion of the world, and Muhammad Ali. And it was called the Rumble in the Jungle. And if you were a, a fan of Ali, you were really frustrated and concerned because for the first seven rounds, Ali just laid on the ropes. He just kept taking a pounding and George Foreman was, was hitting him with everything that he had. And uh, Howard Cosell, obviously Ali hasn't prepared for the fight. He's really too old. He should retire. He's embarrassing himself. Uh, I can't imagine that someone of his esteem would be willing to stand before a national audience, international audience, and, and not be able to uh, defend himself. Now, that was for the first seven rounds. But in the eighth round, <laughs> Ali came out floating like a butterfly and stinging like a bee. And he knocked George Foreman out. And so when the commentators asked him after the fight, what was his reason for not fighting back for seven rounds and what was the most difficult thing for him uh, during the fight, he said, the most difficult thing for me was to maintain my discipline and to follow my strategy. My strategy was to rope a dope. But in order to rope a dope, I had to take his blows. I had to be willing to wait until the enemy gave me his best shots. I had to wait until he tired himself out. I want you to know that when Jesus was hanging on the cross and, and, and hearing those insults and, and, and choosing to leave heaven and being pressured by his disciples and pressured by his, his own flesh to, to, to not go to the cross and die for us, he was on the ropes. But he was following the strategy that was predetermined way back in Genesis chapter 3 where the Lord promised that Messiah would come. And what Jesus, in fact, was doing, even though it looked like he was about to go down, he was actually roping the dope called Satan. Thank God he didn't come down. He faced many pressures, many pressures. Now, the predicament that Jesus made, the second thing I want to share with you, if true, proves that he is the Messiah and Lord. Jesus claimed to be human and divine. He claimed to be equal with God. He said, when you have, I am the father or one. When you see me, you have seen the Father. The Apostle Paul put it like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, verse 4. He says, the God of this world has blinded the minds of them who believe not, 
so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of Christ, who is the glory of God. He said, who, the, they, who could not see the gospel on display through Christ, who is the image of God, who is the image of God. He didn't say an image. He said he is the image. The Greek word for image actually means the icon of God. In Colossians, it says that in Jesus, the fullness, all of the fullness of the Godhead dwells. And so Christ claimed to be equal with God. And the, the, the predictions that he makes in John chapter 10 would either disprove that he was who he claimed to be or prove that, in fact, Christ is both Messiah. He, his predictions is revealed. Uh, he said, therefore, in verse 17 of chapter 10, my father loves me because, and he says, because I lay down my life I, that I may take it up again. So the first thing that the prediction is, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. The sex, second prediction is, no one takes it from me but I lay it down myself. That's the second prediction that Christ says. He says, I'm going to lay down my life so I can take it up again. And when I do lay it down, it's not because of the crucifixion. It's not because man was able to kill me. No one can take my life. And the third prediction is, I have the power to lay it down and I have the power to take it up. And so Christ is like, he said, not only am I going to die. And I had the power to say to my spirit to be turned to my father that the spirit and the body are separated at death. He said, I also have the power, the authority to cause what is dead to come back to life. And so Christ says, I'm both going to die. But after I die, I'm going to command the same dead body to get up again. And then the fourth thing that he, he says, this command I have received from my father. What he's saying is, I'm accomplishing God's will that was determined back in eternity past. So what Christ was saying, I'm going to die voluntarily. No one can take my life. I will lay it down, but I'm going to get up again. And we learned in another passage in Matthew chapter 16, he even gives a specific time frame. He says, in three days, I'm going to get up again. But not because of some uh, something necessarily outside of me, but I'm going to exercise divine power to resurrect my own body from the dead because Jesus is both human and divine. He is God and man. Now, if these things, if Christ never rose from the dead, then every prediction that he makes about him being both God and man would have been false. But thank God he got up. Somebody say amen. Now, the proof that Jesus is truly who he claimed to be is based on the predictions coming to pass. Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He said, if Christ be not risen, we are the most miserable. And the reason why Christians would be the most miserable is because we are yet in our sins. If Christ did not rise from the dead, first he had to die, and then he was buried. But if he had just simply remained in the grave, he'd have been just like any other self-deluded prophet. He would have been like Buddha and Muhammad and Krishna. They, their tombs are still occupied, but the tomb of Jesus is empty. Paul says, if Jesus had not risen, then there is no Christian faith. 
the basis of the Christian church, the basis of the Christian faith, the great, the, the foundation of what we stand on is that we serve a resurrected Savior. If he hadn't got up, we would yet be lost and we'd have no hope of heaven. But praise be to God, he got up and he reigns. Now, some years ago, uh, we, my family and I, were really hungry. And you know the saying that preachers love chicken. Uh, and that happens to be true of this preacher. So we were leaving church. I said, oh, let's stop and get some for dinner. Let's go get some Kentucky Fried Chicken. And so we all got in the car and we drove up to Kentucky Fried Chicken. And we got in this long line, uh, the uh, drive through We finally uh, get to the, um, the window where we can order or to the machine where you can order. And they said, can I help you? And we said, I like X amount of chicken. They say, we don't have no chicken. Now, we were all stunned because the only reason Kentucky Fried Chicken exists is to have chicken. If they don't have chicken, they don't have any reason to exist. They just need to shut down. They call Kentucky Fried Chicken. And so we, they said, well, can we give you con? No, we don't want it. We came for chicken. That's what Kentucky Fried Chicken is supposed to be. The foundation of its existence is based on the good chicken they supposed to sell. They didn't have a single piece of chicken. I'm not trying to say that Jesus is Kentucky Fried, but what I'm saying is the only reason the church exists without the resurrection, there's no reason for us to congregate. There's no reason for us to pray. There's no reason for you to read your Bible. There's no reason for you to witness about Christ. There's no reason for you to have a hope of heaven. There's no reason for you not to expect, like me, that we are destined for eternal separation from God. But because Jesus rose, Thank God, unlike Kentucky Fried Chicken, he can say, I give you life, and I give you life more abundantly. And the life that I give, he said to the woman at the well, he said, if you had asked of me, I would have given you a drink, and you would never thirst again. I want you to understand, because Christ rose from the dead, he has he is in a position to satisfy our desire that could never be quenched until the resurrection of Christ became available to us. So I thank God today that the resurrection proves that he is Messiah. He is the Savior. The resurrection proved just like Christ said, I am going to raise my body up in three days. He got up in, on the third day because he did. That proves that he did what only God can do. Only God can give life to a dead body. Christ is who he said he was. I'm so glad he died. I'm so glad he died just for me. He died for you. But if he, if he remained in the grave, the story would not be complete. And here's the third and final thing. The predicament that we were in demanded divine judgment. But God did the unthinkable. He did the illogical. He did something crazy. He allowed Jesus to die for you and me. In Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8, here's what the word of God says. For when you were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely would a righteous man die for those who are good are considered good, yet perhaps 
for a good man, someone would die. But God, but God, but God demonstrated his love towards us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ, Christ died for us. Now, what was our predicament? There's four things that the Bible says. We were without strength. We were helpless. We lacked the capacity to do anything to make ourselves acceptable to God. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. He said, but the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. They're foolishness because we lack the capacity. We don't have the Spirit of God. And so he says, when, when, the, when the Lord demonstrated his love towards us by allowing Jesus to die, we were helpless. We had no strength, no capability to correct our wrong relationship with God. It also says that we were ungodly. This speaks of our actions. And he said, well, I do good things and I try to treat people the way I want to be treated. But the word of God says that all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Scripture also says that in our flesh, in our human effort, with the best intentions, we cannot please God. And so not only were we helpless, we were ungodly in our actions. And he says a third thing. He says that while we were yet sinners, uh, while the word ungodly speaks of our actions, the, the, the word that is used that refers to all of mankind as sinners speaks of our nature. Of our nature. what We sin because we are sinners by nature. We were born in sin and shaped in iniquity. We have sin nature. We, we are born sinners, separated from God. The Apostle Paul talks about this. We were born dead in our trespasses and sin. We had no spiritual pulse. Can you, now, maybe you've done this before. I've actually had this experience. You see this beautiful red apple. And you just got to have it as big, it's red, it looks sumptuous, and you just want to bite into that. And then as you're getting ready to bite into it, you notice that a hole has been bored into uh, the apple near the stem. And so just out of caution, you may do like I've done. I'll cut the apple open and notice that even though it's red on the outside, it's rotten on the inside. And then as you go a little further, you get to the core of the apple, you discover that a worm has made its way in and caused what looked beautiful on the outside to be rotten on the inside. I want you to know that a worm called sin that was transmitted to our, our, the first, our first parent, Adam, has borne it, bore its way into our life. And since Adam sinned, the Bible says we all in him have sinned. And because of sin, we are the penalty of sin is separation from God. And so even though we may look good on the outside, from God's perspective, we're rotten on the inside because our nature is sinful. We have no capability of doing anything that pleases God without God intervening on our behalf. In verse 10, it actually gives a fourth thing that was an issue for us. He says, we were enemies of God. For when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, made and brought back into a harmonious relationship, we shall be saved by his life. And so I was an enemy of God. I was a sinner, ungodly, without strength. We were in a bad way. We were in a horrible predicament. Our predicament could not have been worse, but he died. 
It makes no sense. It's a crazy love. The Bible says the reason God did it wasn't because we deserved to have his son come. He said, while we were yet without strength, while we were ungodly and sinners, enemies to God, he proved that his love is unconditional by sending the best that he had. He sent Jesus to die for us. It makes no sense that God would give the best that he had to die for us and for Christ to voluntarily lay down his life while having the power to come off of the ropes on the third day and resurrect the body that was once, that was once dead. Now, as we come to a close, I'm reminded of a, of a man who was depressed and suicidal. It was always interesting to me when we lived in Niagara Falls, New York, that when you walk around the falls, there are no fences. And there's something about those waters, they just call you. And so the worst thing for a person who's depressed, don't go to the falls. But this man intentionally went to the falls during uh, the winter. And he decided, I'm going to end this. And so he jumped into the falls. And if you know the history of Niagara Falls, very few people ever survive once they've jumped into the falls. And this man dived into the falls. And he said, after the fact, he felt like a thousand razors were cutting his body as he was uh, piercing through the waters. And some firemen were alerted and they... They went over to the side where the man was, was had actually surfaced and they threw a rope to uh, offer the man an opportunity to be rescued. And he refused. Leave me alone. I want to die. Leave me alone. I, I don't know why I'm still here. Just leave me alone. And so he pushed the rope away. And then these two brave firemen risked their lives. They jumped in frigid water and they swam out to this man and they brought him to safety. In fact, he fought them as they were trying to bring him. One of the firemen nearly lost his life. He almost drowned them. Firemen trying to save him. They finally get to the shore, and they're expecting this man to say thank you. How and people are applauding that they rescue him, but the man is kicking and he's punching and he's like, "Why did you save me? You and call these uh, firemen all okay. He was totally ungrateful that they saved his life. I want you to know that man was us. We were drowning. But there was no one to rescue us because what we were drowning in was not water. We were drowning in the consequence of sin. The Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one. None of us were seeking God. We had all gone our own way. We did not desire to God. We weren't searching for God. But the Lord saw our predicament in eternity past. And the son of God who was slain even before the foundation of the world, the one who was in agreement with the members of the Trinity to come and deliver us from our sin. Jesus dove in as he was hanging on the cross with the nails in his hand and the nails in his feet and the crown of thorns on his head. Hanging in humility, he was rescuing us even as we are, were gathered in, symbolically uh, in the persons of those who were mocking and scorning him and, and, and scoffing him. Jesus kept on dying. He kept on believing that if he could just get to the end of the fight, if he could just get to the end of the fight, then he would come to Resurrection Sunday. And when it was all over, at the end of the 
Jesus on the ropes. He said, it is finished. He wasn't saying, I'm finished. He said, it is finished. Tell Telestai, it is finished. The work of redemption, what I needed to do to redeem mankind from, the, from drowning in sin that separates separate us from God. He said, it is finished. And then the next word, he says, into thy hands, I commend, I entrust, I direct my spirit. And with that, he gave up the ghost. And so on that Friday night, Jesus remained in the tomb. All Saturday he remained. Saturday morning, Saturday evening, Saturday night, Jesus laid in the tomb. And the devil was dancing a jig. The devil thought he finally had Jesus defeated. Devil thought he finally had total victory. But he didn't understand But that, that Sunday was coming. That Sunday was coming because early Sunday morning, the same Jesus who hung and died on the cross for our sin rose with all power and authority in his hands. And I thank him even though I wasn't pursuing him. I thank him even though I couldn't earn salvation or deserved it. That he looked beyond my faults. He looked beyond my, my, my circumstances and my rebellion and my state of being in enmity with God. He looked past all of that and hung there on the cross taking Satan's blows. That he might die and be risen from the grave and right now seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven, making intercession for us. So I'm glad that Jesus died just for me. But the just for me means that what the death needed to accomplish pleased God. The Bible says that Jesus is the propitiation for our sin. He appeased, he satisfied the anger of God against our sin. The debt for sin has been paid. Thank you, Jesus. You ought to rejoice right now that the Lord rose from the dead. You ought to rejoice right now that he thought enough of you to die. And if you had been the only one, he would have come from heaven. He would have left heaven splendor and majesty just for you. And the same Jesus right now, the Bible says, behold, I'm standing at the door of your heart and knocking. If you let me in, even though you are dead in your trespasses and sin. I'm still a but God. I'm still the kind of God that is willing to come in and to sup with you. I will cleanse you from all of your sins, past, present, and future. All you need to do is say, yes, Lord, for the Bible says, for as many as called upon the name of the Lord, they shall be saved. I'd ask you to join with me in prayer right now. If you have never made a decision to personally place your trust in the Jesus who decided to die just for you. You might want to pray a prayer such as this. Lord, I'm a sinner and my sin separates me from you. I believe that Christ died voluntarily for my sins. That Christ remained in the grave for three days just for my sins. And on the third day, just as he promised, he raised up his body from the dead. I believe that Jesus is alive and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And I want to confess my sins. Forgive me, Lord, of my sins. Lord, I no longer want to be separated from you. 
Thank you, Jesus, for your blood that you paid for every sin that I could ever commit, past, present, and future. I accept you by faith as my Lord and my Savior because you are both God and man. Father, thank you for coming into my life through your son, Jesus Christ. And now, God, I thank you for allowing me to be a son and a daughter of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. If you have made the decision to personally place your trust in Christ, I encourage you to speak to someone that is, that is a disciple of Christ, that is following Christ, and that you would begin to uh, allow them to show you from the word of God how you can become stronger in your walk with Christ and that you would find a Bible-centered church that can begin to teach you what the word of God has to say to you. Amen. Praise the Lord.